I'm sure many of you would agree that Christian disciplines are important for our spiritual life, for our growth as individual believers and followers of Christ, as well as for the local body. Some of these include the disciplines of Bible reading and and Bible study, the disciplines of memorizing Scripture and meditating on Scripture, the disciplines of worship and fellowship among God's people. I think everyone here would agree that these are significant disciplines for our Christian walk. These are disciplines that we ought to pursue on a regular basis. But along with these vital disciplines is the Christian discipline of prayer. Prayer directed towards our Lord, our God, our Creator. Prayer is our way of being in constant communion with God. And believers are again and again exhorted to pray all throughout the New Testament. Our Lord saw it a necessity, so He taught the disciples on how to pray. He gave us a model in Matthew 6. Jesus also modeled prayer for us. In the Gospels, again and again, we read that our Lord would go to isolated areas and pray. He prayed for his disciples before he chose who would be his 12 apostles. We see in the high priestly prayer, his prayer to God for his people. We see him pray even before going to the cross. So Christ modeled what it looked like to constantly pray to our Heavenly Father. The apostles also regarded prayer as an essential part of ministry as they devoted themselves to prayer and the preaching of the word as we see in Acts 6. So we see again and again, prayer is important. It is significant. It ought to be a priority for the Christian. So significant that some have likened it to air, to the air that we breathe. Prayer is to the spiritual life of the believer as air is to the physical body. Without air, the body would die. In the same way, without prayer, our spiritual life would suffer. Listen to what the reformer Martin Luther said about the significance of prayer. Quote, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So friends, prayer is significant. Prayer is important. And this morning we'll consider a passage that emphasizes our pursuit of prayer. That we ought to pray regularly, consistently. And that's what we'll see in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. The paragraph is really going from verses 13 through 18, and the emphasis is on prayer. But we'll look at verses 13 through 15 
where we see the significance of prayer in the life of the believer. Let me read verses 13 and onwards. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In these verses, we see the significance of prayer. It's clear that's the focus because the word prayer appears in every verse. And so as we cover these verses, I want you to know two directives concerning prayer so that you will grow in your reliance of God. Two directives. Now before we move forward, let me briefly set the context. In James chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 through 6, James addresses the rich and powerful because they were treating Christians unjustly. They were taking advantage of them. And in verses 7 through 12, James instructed believers on how to respond to such injustice, that they were to patiently endure the trials and look forward. And this morning, James continues on that theme of trials generally, and he focuses on how we are to respond, and we are to respond to him in prayer. When we face the trials of life, whatever it may be, turn to the Lord in prayer. So let's begin by looking at our passage, the first directive, and, and that is we ought to pray at all times. We ought to pray at all times. James says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. In this verse, James provides two contexts of when we ought to pray that sums up the reality, again, that we ought to pray at all times, in all circumstances, in all situations. On the one hand, you have the troubles of life. And on the other, you have the joys of life. We have both of these circumstances that we face. To sum up then, we ought to pray at all times. And that's the point. He gives us these two extremes, brackets, bookends, you can say. We have to pray in these two extremes, but also in every circumstance in between. That's where I get the point. We ought to pray at all times. Look at the first context in verse 1, or verse 13, that is. We had to pray, the first context is we had to pray in times of difficulties. Is anyone suffering? You see, James is aware that life, and perhaps specifically the Christian life, is one where we experience trouble. That is that no one is immune to trouble in a fallen world. 
But when we face the troubles of life, there's a temptation for us to question God's goodness, to question his care and love for us. But instead of questioning God's love and care for us, James encourages us not to get angry, not to question him, not to even depend on yourself. Rather, depend on the Lord. He encourages us with a command to pray to him. When you face the sufferings of life, whatever it may be, the trials, Turn to the Lord in prayer. That should be our first response. That word for suffering literally means to suffer evil. It could be suffering evil for the proclamation of the gospel, but here in this context, I believe just general suffering that we face in a fallen world. It is used by Paul in 2 Timothy 2.9 as he speaks of suffering the hardship of the gospel. And the same word is used back in James 5.10 to describe the unjust sufferings of the Old Testament saints. So again, it could be for the proclamation of the gospel. But in this context, I believe it's general suffering in this life. And so if you find yourself in such situations, and you will, the difficulties of life, which some of you may be in right now, What are you to do? James simply says, go to God in prayer. And we see examples of this again and again throughout Scripture. We see saints responding to the troubles of life by going to God in prayer. For example, David in Psalm 109, verse 4, as he was facing Opposition from the enemy, this is, what, this is what he said. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. He says, but I am in prayer. You remember Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, although he, he experienced suffering due to his own disobedience, but even then, as he was drowning, as he's about to die in Jonah chapter 2, he turned to God in prayer. James in James 1, when he's talking about trials, he says, go to God in prayer for wisdom. So when there are hardships and our circumstances may be difficult, we have to go to God in prayer. We ought to. Here we see that it is a command. And it's in the present tense, this should be our regular practice. Now, I know many of you understand this basic truth. I know you know that this is what you ought to do, but in practice, it's difficult. It's often neglected. I think because of this, we become more anxious the trials that we face in life, instead of turning to God in prayer, we end up meditating on the struggles, on the trials, the troubles of life, which leads to more anxiousness, more distress. 
But if we respond in prayer, you, would be, you will be surprised just how much joy, how much more joy we would have in the midst of the trials. This doesn't mean when you go to the Lord in prayer that he will change your circumstances. Maybe it is God's will for you to go through it. But he will change you. He will change your attitude towards the circumstances. He will give you wisdom in the midst of those circumstances and trials. So that you would honor him in the midst of those trials and troubles. You know why? You know why you would have joy in the midst of trials and troubles of life? It's because you're in communion with the Creator. It's because you're in relationship with the Sovereign One. And so when you go to God in prayer, you will have the right perspective of how to handle those trials and tribulation. And in the midst of that, he'll give you comfort. He'll give you peace. You know, this basic spiritual truth is conveyed by the hymn writer of what a friend we have in Jesus. Listen to these words. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with the load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that's the message here. When you face troubles in this life, whatever it may be, a difficult job situation or difficulties in relationships, physical ailment, opposition to you being faithful in the proclamation of the gospel, if you face these trials of life, turn to the Lord in prayer. Go to him. Seek for wisdom. And he will give you comfort. He'll give you guidance. <clears throat> now James does not just address what we are to do when things aren't so great. He next commands us to pray when things are well. When things are, when we're happy, when we have joy. This is the second context where we ought to pray. We are to pray in times of well-being. Look at the second part of verse 13. James writes, Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Here James addresses those in the church who are happy. That word for cheerful literally means to happy, to be of good spirits have joy. It's likely a reference to favorable circumstances. This is the first context is that of suffering. And these are the high points of life. 
where things are going well for you. School is going well. Relationships are well. Your health is good. And in these circumstances, how are we to respond? The proper response is not pride in our own accomplishments. It's not even to neglect God in such situations. Rather, the appropriate response, again, is to go to God in prayer, expressing your gratitude to Him for His goodness to you. Your response should be to sing praises to God. The verb here, to sing praises, originally meant to pluck or to play a stringed instrument. It has developed to mean to sing songs of praises to God. To sing songs of praises to God. And again, this is a command. We ought to do this in the present tense regularly. But how often we neglect to do this. When things are going well, the last thing on our mind is to sing praises to God. Instead, it should be the first thing. We are to praise God when times are good. We are to acknowledge His goodness to us. Every day, the fact that we get up, it's a blessing. We are to give thanks to Him. And again, we see examples of this in Scripture where saints praise the Lord for His goodness. David says in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Praise Him for all the benefits we get to experience because of God. You know, Jesus also sang praises to God the Father. After the Lord's Supper, before heading to the cross, Mark's, Mark writes in Mark 14, 26, that Jesus sang with the apostles, sang hymns to God the Father, praising God. So friends, we ought to pray to God, singing praises to Him for the many blessings we get to enjoy. Instead of neglecting to praise Him, we're to acknowledge His goodness. We're to give thanks to Him. And this could be for specific instances in the ways He, he blesses you. Maybe you were praying for something in particular and He answers your prayers. Give thanks to God. Maybe school is going well. You got into the, uh, the degree plan that you wanted. Give praise to God. Maybe you applied to a dream job or, or you're looking for a job and He answered that prayer. Give praise to God in those situations. Maybe you're doing financially well. You're healthy. Those are instances where you can give praise and thanks to your Heavenly Father. We should also praise God for the many spiritual blessings we get to enjoy. The blessing of salvation. The fact that God saved you. where He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into His kingdom. 
should give thanks to God for the fact that he has justified you, declared you righteous before him in his courtroom. You should give praise to God for the sanctifying work in your life, that he is conforming you to the image of Christ every day. Friends, we ought to take time to do this regularly. And the thing is, we can do this even in times of trouble. Give thanks to God. Praise Him for the many, bla- many ways He has blessed you. And so together with these two contexts here in our verse, James is again showing the two extremes of life to communicate that we are to pray at all times. We're to go to Him in times of trouble and we're to, again, go to Him in good times, praising Him, giving thanks to Him. <clears throat> so let me ask you directly this morning, is this your response? Do you pray regularly? I know the theme of our summer um, camp was prayer. And I'm sure you learned a lot regarding prayer and were encouraged and maybe started to consistently pray? Have you kept up with it? Have you been consistently praying to God every single day? As you face troubles in life, is your response to turn to Him in prayer? When you get the job that you've been looking for, do you turn to God in prayer? James says to turn to God in prayer. Make this a regular practice. Again, this does not mean, for example, when you're facing trials, that when you pray to God that he will get you out of that situation. Maybe it's God's will for you to go through it. But the point is that we need to be in constant communion with our Creator. And that's a privilege. This is a privilege and a blessing for only believers. We get to go to our Father in heaven in prayer. That means we have an intimate relationship with God. And we should not take that lightly. So James calls us to pray. There's a second directive we find in our text in verses 14 and 15, and that is we ought to pray during divine chastening. We ought to pray during divine chastening. We will see specifically here that we are to call the elders in such situations, and they will pray on our behalf. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Here James goes from the general call to pray at all times to what we are to do in a specific context. 
as we'll see. The theme is still prayer. The subject is still prayer. Now, before we move forward, I, I do want to give you a heads up that this is one of the most debated passages, or these verses, that is. There is a huge discussion as to what James is talking about here when he talks about healing and, and promise of healing. There are many who view, who interpret this passage in different ways. For example, the Catholics cite this passage for their sacrament of extreme unction, or what is also known as last rites. This is where the priest would come and pray over the dying individual to remove any remnants of sin. So this is how they interpret this passage. Then in the charismatic circles, they cite this passage to promote, essentially, their healing crusades. They cite this verse saying, this is a promise that God will heal us in any, in any situation. And to be upfront, I don't believe that these are the appropriate or right understanding of this passage. And hopefully as we walk through this, I can show you all that. <clears throat> Rather, what I will propose is that when James is talking about sickness in verse 14, he is talking about a physical sickness, a severe sickness that is tied to, that is linked to unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin of the individual. And the promise is for healing in such a circumstance, in such a situation. So let's consider the following verses. James says, Is anyone among you sick? That word for sick literally means to be without strength, to be weak, to be physically sick. It can be used in a spiritual sense to, to mean uh, spiritual weakness. And it is used that way in the epistles. And, but when it is used this way in terms of spiritual weakness, it is often qualified. For example, in Romans 14.1, where James is talking about issues of conscience, he says about the weaker brother, he says this. Now, except the one who is weak, that's our word, Weak, spiritually weak. And then he qualifies it by saying, in faith. Weak in faith. But usually, when this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to physical sickness. This is the case pretty much every time in the Gospels. And I think that's how we should interpret it here, because James does not qualify the sickness. And secondly... He calls the individual to call the elders to come pray. So that indicates this person is physically unable to go to the elders. So he's suffering, suffering from a debilitating sickness where life and death are at stake and the person is bed, bedridden. Furthermore, I believe that this is not just any severe sickness. Rather, it is a severe sickness tied to, as I've mentioned, unrepentant sins. 
So you could say the sickness is due to divine discipline, divine chastening by God. Because this believer has been harboring sin. And the reason why I believe this is the context is because one, at the end of verse 15, James says, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So we see a link between the sickness as well as sin. And a second reason I believe this is the context is because of the illustration James uses in verses 17 and 18. Let me read that real quick. James says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here in this illustration, James is making the point of the power of prayer by the one who is righteous. But it's interesting that James chooses Elijah as the illustration. Oftentimes when we think about saints of Scripture who are prayerful, Elijah wouldn't be uh, at the top of the list. Possibly Daniel would come to our mind. Maybe even Hannah. Maybe even David. But James chooses Elijah here. And he chooses Elijah in a specific context. See, Elijah prayed that there would not be any rain in Israel. Why? Because of the idol worship of Baal that permeated the nation under the leadership of King Ahab and Jezebel. You can read that in 1 Kings 17 through 19. And because of their lack of repentance, God judged the nation through a drought. God withheld rain for three and a half years. And in that period, the nation suffered. You see, this was a form of divine chastening for God's people. God disciplined the nation physically because of their prolonged patterns of unrepentant sins. And it was not until Elijah confronted them, and we see that in chapter 17 or 18, where he confronts the prophets of Baal and Asherah. After that moment, the nation repented. And then Elijah prayed, the rain, the, 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 that the drought would that the drought would end, and what do we see? We see rain. And so, for these reasons, I believe the sickness in verse fourteen again is a physical sickness, a physical debilitating sickness due to unrepentant sin. But before we continue in the text, I do want to make the point. I want to be clear that not all sickness is tied to sin. Our Lord made that clear in John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man. There Jesus said, 
that the man was blind because, not because of his sins, but so that the works of God might be displayed through him. So not all sickness is due to sin, but some are. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, where believers were taking or partaking the Lord's table in an un- unworthy manner. So God judged them, disciplined them through sickness and even death. And I think our text this morning is one of those passages where we see at times when we continue in unrepentant sin, God lovingly disciplines us. And so, if this is the situation, what should be the response? And James continues to expand on that. James says that the restoration of the person can be achieved by God through repentance and prayer. James tells the person who is severely sick and who has been harboring sin that he is to call the elders of the church. He is to call the elders of the church. The verb to call means to summon, to call to one side. The sick person is to ask the elders to come to where he's at. By the way, this goes against what we see in the healing crusades where they have these venues where they invite people to come and heal the sick. Clearly, that's not the interpretation of this passage. If someone who's sick and bedridden, they can't go to these venues. And so they misapply this text for their purposes. But here we see the sick are to call, that sick individual in this context is to call the elders to come to them. Now who are the elders? These are men who God has appointed to oversee and lead the local assembly, the local bodies of, body of believers. These are the spiritually mature who are equipped to give counsel and direction to the flock. And so the one who is severely sick is to call the elders of his church and they are to come and pray. And when the elders are when the elders come, they pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the implication is when the sick person calls and the elders come, he confesses his sins to them. He confesses the sins that he's been harboring. And once that happens, the elders pray over the person and anoint him with oil. What specifically do the elders pray for? I think they pray for genuine repentance, that the person is genuinely confessing his sins, first and foremost to God and to the elders. And secondly, for healing, for physical healing, as we will see in verse 15, but also forgiveness. Now, prayer is the focus of this verse and not necessarily the anointing of oil. One, because it is the main verb of the verse. And secondly, we see it is the prayer that brings the healing and not necessarily the oil, the anointing of oil. But we must ask the question, what does the anointing of oil mean? 
Some have said that the anointing of oil is for medicinal purposes. In ancient time, olive oil was used in certain cases for such reasons, such purposes. We see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan in, in the Gospel of Luke. However, it wasn't the cure for all sicknesses. It wasn't a cure for more severe sicknesses. And so because of that, I don't believe that that is the sense here. Others have suggested that this, uh, this should be taken symbolically. That this is a physical action with symbolic significance. When the elder, elders anoint this person with oil, the person who is sick is being consecrated or dedicated to the Lord for healing. In the Old Testament, oftentimes certain individuals were anointed to be set apart for the Lord's work. It symbolized God's presence with them. And so here, the anointing of this person with oil is in essence being set apart for God's special attention and special care for the individual, symbolizing God's presence with them. And although we can't be dogmatic, I do believe that this is how we are to interpret the anointing of oil here. <clears throat> it is a symbolic act. It is not for medicinal purposes. Because again, the emphasis is on prayer, and it is the prayer that brings the healing, and not the oil. It is the prayer to God that restores the individual. James also continues in verse 14 by saying that the, the elders are to anoint and pray for the person in the name of the Lord. This indicates that the authority by which the action is carried out is in the Lord. It is a reminder that the healing will be done solely by God's will, by God's power, by God's authority. And when they pray, when they pray in the name of the Lord, what is the result? Well, there's two. One, the result will be such that the prayer will bring physical healing. The individual will be made whole. He will be restored. James writes in verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer offered in faith will bring restoration. And this word for prayer here is not the common word for prayer, and it's different from what we see in verse 13 and 14 in the Greek. It's a different word for prayer. It can mean to make a vow, but here in this context, it refers to a strong petition made by the elders. A strong petition, a strong plea directed towards God. <clears throat> and this petition is offered in faith. Literally, a prayer of faith. That is, it is the elders' prayer offered as an expression of their trust in God and His power to work in this situation, to work supernaturally in this situation. They believe in God's promise that in such situations, when they pray that God will heal this individual. They're fully convinced and they fully trust the Lord. 
They trust in God's word. And such a prayer, James says, will bring restoration to the one who's sick. That word restore means literally, literally means to, to save, to make well, to make whole. And in this context, it's talking about physical healing to the individual. This is a promise of, of absolute restoration to full health for the one who has been harboring sin. God will bring physical healing. Now keep in mind, it's not anything in the elders that bring the healing. It is the power of God. Ultimately, it is the Lord who acts. Because James adds next that the Lord will raise him up. It is the prayer of the Lord. It is the power of the Lord, excuse me, the power of the Lord that brings healing and restoration. And a good illustration of this is Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic. Jesus raises him up. Even in John chapter 5, the lame guy, the Lord raised him up. And in this situation, it is the Lord who will raise up the one who is severely sick due to sin. But not only will the person be healed from physical sickness, but the verse continues to state a second result, that this person will also be forgiven. Look at verse, look at the end of verse 15. It says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Here, as I've mentioned, we see the link between the sickness and sin. The word here, and if, could also be translated as even though. And so instead of it saying, and if he has committed sin, I think a better translation here would be, even though he has committed sin, the result will be, after he's confessed, after the elders have come and prayed for this individual, he will be physically healed and his sins will be forgiven. He'll be restored to his heavenly father. He'll be made right with God. His sins will be forgiven. This, by the way, is not justification that happens at the moment of conversion. But we know we're still in the flesh. We still sin against not our judge now, but our heavenly father. And here for the person who has been harboring sin, his sins will be forgiven. His relationship with God, his heavenly father, will be made right. And that should cause great comfort and joy for the individual. In fact, I would say that should be higher in the list of priorities, even more than physical healing. Oftentimes, we would rather have the physical healing and not really put much emphasis on being forgiven. But I think that should be more our priority for our relationship to be made right with God. 
And in this situation, yes, physical healing will happen. If he confesses his sins and the elders come and pray in faith, he will be physically made new, he or she, whoever the person is. But also he or she will be forgiven. So all of this with the calling of the elders show us that this is a unique circumstance. And this is a promise in a specific situation, in a specific context. And if a person who is suffering through a physical ailment and he suspects it's due to his sin, this is what he is, ought to do. He is to call the elders. He is to confess his sins to them. They are to pray and anoint him with oil. And the promise is he will be physically restored and he will be forgiven. <clears throat> so you see the significance of prayer. That is the emphasis here. That we are to pray, as we saw in verse 13, in all circumstances. And if we find ourselves in a specific circumstance, as we saw in verse 14 and 15, we are to call the elders and they are to pray. And so what are some of the lessons for us this morning? Let me give you two. And I've already emphasized this, but let me emphasize it again. Make time to pray. Pray. We ought to pray at all times. We are to pray Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and again Sunday. <clears throat> Make this a regular practice, a discipline. Make it a priority to commune with your Heavenly Father. Use the example Jesus gave us in chapter 6. Pray regularly. And the reality is, <clears throat> if you're not, we're disobeying God's word. And we have to repent. Understand that this is a privilege. Unbelievers can't pray to God. They can't pray to God as their Heavenly Father. But if you're in Christ, this is a privilege. This is a blessing. So pray Pray to your Heavenly Father. Secondly, as we, as we saw in verse 14 and 15, <clears throat> we ought to take sin very seriously. See, God saved us. He saved us for holy living. We are to live lives of holiness and godliness. And so, God takes sin very seriously in the life of the believer. If we're harboring sin, and you may be able to hide it from other people, know that you can't hide it from God. And in God's patience and kindness, He's leading you even through this message of there is sin in your life that you're harboring, that you're not taking seriously. He's calling you to repentance. But the reality is, if you continue in sin, God will discipline his own. Even to the point of severe physical sickness 
and even to the point of death. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. And so this ought to be a reminder for us that we ought to take sin very seriously. We ought to seek to put off sin, put off unrighteousness, put off the old self, and put on righteousness. We ought to put on holiness and godly living. And this ought to be our regular practice. And hopefully, you would take the time to examine your own life to see if there are any sins that you're harboring, that you would turn to him confessing those sins and turning from them. And a direct application also here is if you find yourself in a situation where you suspect that your physical suffering is due to sin, then you see the directions that, that James gives. Go call the elders, confess your sins, and they will pray over you, and the promise is you will be healed. If you're not healed, then that means your sickness is not due to sin. <clears throat> but again, the emphasis is on prayer, and hopefully... If anything, my, I hope the main takeaway is that you see the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. That you would pray to your Heavenly Father in all circumstances and make this a regular practice. I was challenged by this as I was studying this passage and hopefully you will be too. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for your grace and the fact that you've preserved your word for us. And thankful for a reminder, Lord, how, one, we have the privilege to pray to you. And Lord, we ought to pray to you always. And I pray that you would help us to do so. Help us to make it a priority. Help it to be a part of our regular um, Christian life. Help us to pray to you in all circumstances, in the difficult times, in the good times, coming to you, seeking wisdom and guidance in the the times of trouble, and, and coming to you in the good times, praising your name for your goodness towards us. Thank you for such a privilege. Lord, help us to honor you in all that we do. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.